Uh, we're looking at Romans uh, chapter 7, and this is perhaps one of the most controversial, difficult passages of Scripture, particularly verses 14 through 23, where Paul talks about the battle with sin. How do we live with this incredible pressure and tension uh, in this world? And so, uh, if you have your Bible, you can open them to that chapter. If you don't, you can see it. It's printed in the bulletin. And what we're going to do today, I'm only going to read the uh, from 7 to uh, probably to 13, the end of 13. I'm not going to read the whole thing because later in the sermon, I'll read the rest and pull it, put it together. And this may be the last time we look at this chapter. We've taken two weeks now to look at it because it is very complex and can be a bit controversial. So now hear the Word of God, starting in verse 7 of Romans 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's commands for its own evil purposes. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I think um, I've said it enough, but I'll say it again. The entire world, everybody, even atheists, even people who do not believe in God, struggle with some sense of transcendence. There's a God out there somewhere, he's uh, or gods, he, she, it, them, whatever you happen to believe, and everybody that, uh, that thinks about God is trying to figure out how do I relate to this God? What is my relationship to this transcendence? Uh, even atheists who don't believe in God spend their whole life wrestling with not believing in God. Not them personally, they may completely uh, not believe in God, but they spend their lives trying to prove it to other people that God doesn't exist. And so you can see the irony in our world, human beings trying to suppress the truth. This is from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. They try to suppress the truth and replace it with a lie. This is a, for all humanity, looking for something that will give them meaning and right, right, something that will justify 
their very existence. Why am I here? What am I doing? And that is unique to humans because they were created in the image of God and then we sinned, we turned away from God and the, the consequences of that is a loss of ourselves. We lose ourselves and become enslaved to sin. And we spend our lives trying to deal with those sins. Sometimes we, we try to make up for them. We try to find ways to, to reverse what we do. At other times, we try to take a sin, any name your sin, a particular sin that we don't like, and we try to redefine it or just say, well, that's not a sin. But how do you do that? How do you just decide what's right and wrong? You see, God has set the guardrails and the limits or humanity, and they're unchangeable. They're not going to change. So when you go against God, you're going against the creator of the universe. You're bumping up against something you're not going to be able to move. He's the judge. He's the righteous one. And he gave the world laws or rules, if you will. First one, don't eat from that tree. Just make babies and expand my kingdom, garden, and take care of the world, and spread the good news of God to the nations, all the world. That's the, the law in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, then you'll know evil. And I don't want you to know evil, I want you to know good. And do good, and be good, and enjoy the goodness of God. And the first thing we did, go eat the tree. And Paul is addressing that in his letter. You can tell when he's talking about those things. The law, God's law, then became later on Ten Commandments. Here's how humanity, regardless of what you believe, here's how humanity is going to have to deal with the God of Israel. He reveals himself, who he is, and he says, here's how you must deal with me. And if you look at the law, we're going to look at it in a minute. I'm going to read you something from Dr. Hendrickson's commentary um, that will explain the, the general necessity of having these guardrails, what it means to you. We think God is trying to squeeze us in and keep us from having fun and joy and all that thing, and the exact opposite is true. The law frees you from the slavery to sin. Did you hear that? The law is freedom. I don't know if any of you listen to talk radio. There's a lady, Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Anybody know who she is? Okay, two people. Well, listen. She's a Jewish lady, wrote a great book, a fantastic book on the Ten Commandments. I read it. I used it in my sermon series on the Ten Commandments because she's brilliant. Uh, her talk show was whatever, but she wrote this little book on the Ten Commandments, and it was really good. She's not a Christian. But she said this in the book, I'll never forget it, that the people of Israel were not freed from Egypt uh, through Moses when they left Egypt. That was not their moment of freedom. When they left Egypt, went through the Red Sea, and destroy, he destro God destroys the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. That's not when they became free. They became free when they got to the Mount of God, Mount Sinai, and got the Ten Commandments. That's when freedom sprung to life 
among this community of people. Freedom is found in the law. Joy is found in the law. Because God provides the law to protect us from the evils of sin. So we don't like to hear that. We want to just, well, let's not talk about sin. Sin's not, let's only talk about grace and God's goodness and His love. But folks, all those things don't mean anything. Unless you have a crisp, I mean sharp, and uncomfortable understanding of what happened to us as human beings. Christianity is the only religion that offers that, that defines that relationship completely, that gives us a God who loves us and gave us laws to protect us. And when we broke those laws, which we do, and we do it with gusto, when we break them, He points us to His Son and says, look at Him, come back to me. He doesn't say, you broke the law, down you go, here's the trap door, boom, you go down. No, He says, look, the law pushes us to His Son. And His Son gives us life. Why? Because He was the law keeper, not the law breaker. This relationship with the law is what Paul is defining. And so we're going to return to the three questions that we looked at last week, but in a, a little bit different way. Paul asks three questions in this, in this section. And the questions are meant to open our presuppositions. They're meant to open the way we think about the law. His first question, look at 7, the very first part of it. Well, am I suggesting the law of God is sinful? Of course not. There's a, there's a way to read Romans and say, oh, well, God is, you know, he put, this whole, he put all these blocks in our life, all these stumbling blocks. How are we ever going to live? When that's not what it is. The law is the safe place to walk. But we don't. We go off into all kinds of directions. And listen, everybody tries to make up somehow for the errors of their life. And that's what Jesus solves for us. Jesus Christ solves that one issue of how to relate to God in this broken world where sin is constantly pressing in on us and coming out of us. Listen to Dr. Hendrickson. I had to go get some of the heavyweights in this chapter, and he's one of the heaviest, William Hendrickson. And uh, he and Dr. Kistemaker wrote this amazing New Testament commentary. And I had the privilege of, of studying with Dr. Kistemaker and watching his orchids when he would go on his summer vacations. And uh, that was one of the most stressful things in life, uh, living in Florida. He lived around the corner from us. And he went on, when he went away on summer, he went the whole summer. He and his wife, they would go to Korea. He would teach in seminary. He would come here and, and teach at the seminary up in the Sangre, Sangre de Cristo uh, Mountains, uh, the seminary we have up there. And he would teach in different places around the world. And he had orchids, his wife and him. And they had to be, I don't know, do any of you know orchids? They're a temperamental flower. You've got to put just the right amount of water and all that stuff. And I kill everything I touch. So it was uh, very stressful. Well, listen to Dr. Hendrickson. How was it 
that while Paul expected life, he found death. That's what this section's about. He was a Jew. He was raised in the law, and he expected, as every Jew and Israelite did, that if they followed the law, if they could just keep it going, if they could just not break these commandments, you know, they, they turned the commandments into some sort of a trophy that if they could keep it, how great that would be. God will like me. I will satisfy him, and I can be accepted if I just do this. Listen to what he says. How was it that while Paul expected life, he found death? And that while he expected happiness, he found gloom? The reason was not that something was wrong with the law. On the contrary, that law was and always is holy and righteous and good since it not only strives to promote these very qualities, as becomes clear from the reading of each commandment, but also reflects the holiness and righteousness and goodness of God. As we relate to God, you know, you can make up a God. That's the easiest thing in the world. I think, here's how it goes. I think God is this and this and this. Whatever. Okay? That, that very simple movement, I believe God is this and this and this. You've just entered into deep, rigorous theology. And what you're doing is you're creating a God in what? In your own image. That's just you. Apologists have been saying this literally for hundreds of years, going back to the beginning of the church. Here's, this, there's, here's what I think God is. That's nothing but idolatry. It's creating a God in the image of you. And Christians do it the same way. We come to something like the law, which is, listen, it, it rubs against us. And so we start to redefine God. Well, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in the God of the Bible, but... And then we create the idols. And that's the very thing the Israelites did and the Jewish nation did in the Old Testament. That's what most of the Old Testament is written for that because they wanted to take uh, yod heh vav the God, Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to pronounce uh, God, the Lord, they took the Lord and they said, we love the Lord. We're going to build this beautiful temple. But you know, we also love the world we're living in so much, we want to borrow from them and add their gods to our God. So they started adding little things. Solomon was famous for doing that later in his life and it brought the kingdom of God down. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The word before does not necessarily in Hebrew mean rank or order. You know, like, okay, you have God is one, and then my family is two, and my church is three, and my occupation is four. That's not what it is. Before me is in my presence. I've told you this over and over again. So don't bring anything into my presence other than your faith in me. So we don't bring our, our money and our jobs and our reputation and all these things in and say, here's who I am and I'll do this for you. That isn't the biblical God. We come before Him and we bring our 
our stuff, good and bad, we lay it before Him and we say to Him, I trust you. And I will do what you say. I'll go where you send me. And when I fail, I will run to Jesus, my King. Yeah? Okay, good. Well, let me finish this because this is it's too good to pass up. If I have to go another week, I'll go another week. But is it not a merciful? He's talking about the law, the Ten Commandments. I love this. Is it not a merciful arrangement that by means of the first and second commandments, God warns us of the evils of idolatry with all the corruption and filth and disappointment and grief that goes along with it, he says, that attends it. That by means of the fourth, now he's just walking through the commandments, by means of the fourth commandment, he sets aside a much-needed day of rest and worship for mankind. That by means of the fifth commandment, he places the child under the rule and care and protection of those who love him most. That by means of the seventh commandment, he guards the sacredness of marriage. And by means of the sixth and eighth commandment, protects human life and property. So it is made very evident that it was not the law as such, but was sin. In the present case, Paul's own sinfulness that made it impossible for the law to make a person holy and happy. The commandment, he's explaining what the commandment did to Paul, which we'll look at in just a second. The commandment operating by itself, listen, never kills or even hurts anyone. The commandments don't hurt us. It's impossible that God would create some law that would hurt you. It is sin that kills. It was sin that even deceived the Apostle Paul in his unconverted state into thinking that he would be able to live in strict obedience to God's law. It deceived him. Until one day, in a very dramatic way, it was made clear to him that no matter how hard he tried, he would never, no, never, thus attain to the status of righteousness before God. That's what he's talking about in these latter verses. Listen to them again now. In this context, here's a man who was raised in a religion that told him, you must strive to be right with God on your own, and here's the way to get there, these rules, these ceremonies, all of the law actually, but he's even, he's even reducing it down to the Ten Commandments itself. Listen, sin used, do not covet, the Tenth Commandment, to arouse all kinds of covetous desires. If there were no law, sin would not have any power. See, if we were just, if we were all libertarians, we all know what that is, you know, just whatever, as long as you don't hurt anybody else, 
Well, that's fine if the guy across the road won't hurt you. But it falls apart if you have people that are controlled by evil. And if you don't see yourself as one of those people, you will also be overtaken. Once I lived without understanding the law. How could that be? He grew up knowing the law. But he said the law, what he's getting at is the law is external. The law had not made its way down into his heart. His heart was motivated by self-interest, selfishness, self-righteousness. It was inside and he couldn't get it out. Promised life, but he couldn't get it. The frustration must have been enormous. Well, we have the same thing. We just don't, we're not quite as open and honest as Paul is. When I learned do not covet, the power of sin came. The word in Greek is that he sprang. It exploded in his life. It sprang to life. I died. I discovered the law's commands which promised life brought spiritual death instead. It was just killing him like it does many of us. Christianity can feel like a burden. It can just be crushing you down. I'm not good enough. Look at my, look at my life. Nobody even knows what I'm struggling with. Look at all this. We know it and it kills us because it has nowhere to go. It's like a pressure cooker. It just builds and builds and builds. It springs to life and it controls. I discovered the law's commands which promised life and brought spiritual death and said, sin, listen to this, sin took advantage of the commands. It deceived me and used the commands to kill me. Then in verse 12 he ends, but still, even in spite of all that, the law is holy, right, and good. It's interesting, scholars have, have said, why did he pick coveting, the Tenth Commandment? Because coveting runs back up this ladder and, and absorbs all of them into the heart. Says, Look, you may outside, you may look like, like a wonderful whitewashed grave. Outside. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones and every kind of corruption. This was your words of your Savior to the religious community who were scrupulous in obeying the law. And Jesus said, you're nothing but whitewashed walls. But inside, whitewashed graves, but inside, there are dead men's bones and every kind of corruption. Wow. That wasn't the only thing he said. He went on and on in Matthew 23. Coveting is a matter of the heart. It's a discontentment, envy, jealousy, complaining, carping, grumbling, sulking when we don't get our own way. It's not just having desires. It's having over-desires, epithumia, the kind of desires that take you away and control you. Have no, they're like a current or a wave or a riptide. They grab you and they take you. And you cannot break free. You were promised a good vacation until the riptide came on the beach and took you out to sea. And you drowned. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about life and death for humanity. And he's talking about the struggle that Christians have as well with sin. It's not wrong to have desires, to want to achieve, to have ambition. 
But when they start controlling us and driving us and, and we don't achieve it and we are crushed with it, red flags. Red flags. Something is controlling your heart. Something is in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, a room where no one could go. Something is in there besides God. And he says, I won't have that. Why? For him? No. For you. Because it's corrupting and deadly and leaves us dead. You see, these verses through verse 12 all describe a man or woman who's striving but dying. It's just killing, killing, killing. Seven, the second part of 7 and all the way through verse 12 is permeated with death and dying. And as I told you last week, it's all in the past. Past tense. It was a battle that Paul and the religious people of his day, the Pharisees, Sadducees, all these people, it was a struggle, as Tim Keller puts it, a battle they could not win. It's a battle you can't win. If you're going to try to find your way to God, the holy and righteous and good God, through your moral and good doings, humanity can't do it. We just cannot. You can try. And there are a lot of good people in this world that really are trying to be good. But their assurance, the assurance of their goodness is found in an empty hole inside them. There's nothing there. And if you talk to human beings, they'll tell you there's nothing. They'll be grabbing for everything around them to try to fill that hole. And now, Kim Kardashian has got to find somebody else to fill that Right? She lost Pete Davidson. What a deal. Right, Leanne? I mean, come on. Who would ever want to let go of Pete Davidson? I don't care how rich you are. Everybody's looking for something. So 7 through 12 is it's permeated with death, and it's in the past tense. He's talking about himself. Told you that last week. We're going to Go with the idea that, and, and this is held by most scholars, John Calvin believed he was talking about himself, so we're not going to go against that. He's not talking in the abstract. He's talking about his own personal experience. So he asks question two. How can that be? Did the law, which is good, he affirmed it in 12, he says the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. He's begging you as a human being to think, especially Christian, think. Do you think that your experience is any different than mine? No. The law is not going to bring us something, even though it's good. In an, un, in an unconverted state, if Jesus Christ is not the law keeper for you, and that you are trusting Him, the law is going to be nothing but death to you. And we want it to spring to life. We want the law to be something we can say, God, oh Lord, I love your law. How beautiful it is. Psalm 119, 173 verses of, God, your law is glorious. I can't live without it. Every verse is about the Word of God. And we read that and we think, oh, well, how can it be? He answers this. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation. So we can see how terrible sin is. Not the law. Nothing wrong with the law. It's the sin that makes us 
butt our heads against God's laws. That's all it is. There's nothing wrong with God's law. The problem lies with us. Now, very quickly, we're going to transition. I'm going to do my best to finish in a few minutes. Here's where he changes tense, okay? 7 through 13 uh, are all in the, in the past tense. But now he changes to the present tense. He's talking about his personal experience now as a believing Christian, and yet sin is present. This is Paul who knows that his sin has been paid for. The penalty was taken care of in chapter 3 of Romans. He talks about propitiation and believing by faith and all of that, all of sin, no one's good. But Jesus made satisfaction to God. He satisfied. He kept the law for us, as us, so that we could be free not to not obey the law, but that we could be free to then obey the law, to love it and strive to follow it. Because our life, the source of our life, isn't from the law. It's from Him. Our whole relationship to the law changes. The law is no longer death to us because it's no longer our life. The law is the way we please our blessed Savior. And show Him our love and our gratitude for what He does in our life. So this switch in tense, again, I'm, I'm borrowing this from, from Dr. Keller, but it's just too good to pass up. In verse 14 following to uh, 23, He's using the present tense and He's talking about a battle that you cannot lose. Okay? Battle you can't win. And then He goes to a battle that you cannot lose. Listen to uh, Dr. Leon Morris. When I, when I told you I had to pull out the heavyweights, these guys, they're, they're, they're beyond. Listen, Leon Morris says this, when the commandment came, that's when it dawned on the Apostle Paul, it killed forever the proud Pharisee, thanking God that he was not as other men and sure of his merits before God. It killed off the happy sinner. It showed him the seriousness not so much of sin in general, but of his own sin. What are you going to do with that mess inside? The coming of the law, or the dawning of it on him, if you will, in that sense always kills off our cheerful assumption of innocence. We see ourselves for what we really are. Sinners. And we die. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, self-reliance. It is death. The law is not what kills us. It's sin. It's us knowing, I cannot find my way to God up this ladder of achievement, of merit, when the whole world is built on a system of what? meritocracy the entire world everything we know is by merit except this god has created it that way you know go out and replenish or replenish the earth there's going to be merit but when you come to him 
you lay it down and say, no, I can't have a relationship with God based on that. I have to get the relationship somewhere else and then do the law in response to His goodness, His grace, and His love. Make sense? Well, this is where Paul is taking us. And listen, it's, not, it's, it's a tough uh, road to go. He, and that's why he's asking these questions. He wants to open our presuppositions about our relationship to God, the law, grace, love, all of that. He wants us to rethink it in light of who Jesus is. Our present struggle is with the presence of sin. The penalty taken care of, chapter 3. The power of sin destroyed, chapter 5 and 6, by Jesus, the second Adam, by Jesus Christ Himself. He destroys the power of sin. But, Paul is telling us, even though that's all true, sin is still present The battle is still going on, but as Dr. Keller says, it's one you cannot lose. Listen to this. This is just beautiful. Look at 14. The trouble is not the law. It is spiritual and good. The trouble is me. I'm all too human. In Greek, it says I'm carnal. He's not saying you can be a carnal Christian. What he's saying is I'm still in this body awaiting the resurrection, the redemption of my body, the reclamation of of mankind through the work of Jesus Christ. He's shifting away from the laws being the thing to the present time, us battling sin and darkness and all that. Why are we doing it? We're doing it because this world belongs to God, not to Satan, yes? It belongs to our King. Everything He created, every person in this room belongs to Him. And so the only reason we get together on Sunday is to worship Him and glorify His good name and spread the good news that you as a sinner, me as a sinner, are welcomed into His presence. The, the law is not going to kill you. It's going it's to be the way you satisfy me. And how can that be? Because Jesus already satisfied me. Will you trust Him? My goodness. Even with your law breaking, but... Also with your law keeping. I was all too human, a carnal, a slave to sin. I am, he says. Now, I'm still in this battle. I don't understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. He's not talking about dualism. He's talking about tension. He's not saying there's a good, a good wolf and a bad wolf. and you know, you, It's not Greek dualism. He's talking about just basic human tension with God's law. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. He's he's talking about his present state. So I am now at this present time not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me. What that means is I'm still living in the presence of sin and it is still exerting pressure on me. Can you feel it? It's still exerting pressure on us. Even though we're redeemed and born again and we have new life and the chains have been broken, the law 
and our sin in particular when, when we're dealing with the law is whispering to us and telling us, you know, Christians don't act like that. Christians don't have those thoughts. Christians don't this and Christians don't dance. They don't do this. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They don't chew. They don't dance with girls that do. They don't play cards and neither should you. Right? I mean, all of these things. And Paul is saying, you know what? I am now. Listen to what he said. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me. He's not shirking. He's not pushing it off on sin. He's saying, I'm still in sin's presence. And so I'm the one doing this stuff. When I break God's law, now I know what I'm doing. I know nothing good lives in me. That's in my sinful, my habitual self. Nothing good is because presence of sin still there. 21, I've discovered a principle in life. This is beautiful. When I want to do good and want to do right, it's inevitably I do wrong. The battle. I love God's law with all my heart. Wow. Now, he didn't say that in those other verses. Now he loves God's law with all his heart. His true self. How many of you, let's raise our hands to the glory of God. How many of you want to follow Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You love Him and you want to follow Him. Who wants to do that? Oh, yeah, hooray, let's be Pentecostal. I mean, we want to do it. If you're a Christian, there's going to be this desire. What do I do for my Savior? The Pharisees asked Jesus, what do I do to be saved? And Jesus said, trust me, believe in me. And that was the one thing they couldn't do. They were great at obeying the law and they were good at repenting. But they would not go to him. They wouldn't. They said, well, we'll just repent and go back to doing good. Repent, going back to doing good. And if any of you have seen the circle, you know that running to Jesus got to happen before you return to obedience. Otherwise, it's not the gospel. It's not the love of God that's moving you. It's you trying to gain something from God. When I want to do good, I inevitably do what is wrong. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. That that presence of sin is battling my mind or my heart. He's talking about his heart still. The power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. So when he sins, he gives himself back to his slave master. And in a few verses, he's going to say that when we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're sinning because it's your nature to sin and that's just all you can do, just sin, 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 and you love sin, why would that grieve the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't. You're just doing what you were meant to do. But if you're a child of God and you're caught up in sin, something that's crushing you down and enslaving you, then you can see why the Holy Spirit is grieved and why He starts moving in us, convicting us of sin, telling us, no, 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 don't go there. Minefield. Minefield. Bridge that's going to break when you step on it. A riptide. That water looks really nice on the surface out there in the beach, but you know it's going to sweep you away. All of those metaphors are here. 
And so Paul brings us to this last verse, which is just magnificent. I'll close with this. What a miserable person, or he uses a term, a wretch, uh, a person that's just completely broken down. What a miserable wretch I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? The battle. Who's going to come in? Is it going to be Nike? Do more? Run faster? You know, off to work you go. Work, work, work. More, more, more. Do better, do better. Be better, be better. No wonder Christians are just out of their minds. Because we're not relaxing in the grace of our Savior and our King. And then out of that, thoughtfully, combating the sin in our life and being honest about it. Thank God, he says. What a miserable wretch. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin? And then he answers it in 25. We think that 7, chapter 7 is so dark. Chapter 7 is the light bursting out of this. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is now in my mind, in my heart, in my inner self, my truest sense, my my truest self, my born again self. I really want to obey God's law. I want to do it. Because of my sinful nature, I know I'm a slave to sin. It's still present. So how do we put this into our life. What what can you possibly do? Nothing. You can do nothing to defeat sin. That's why He's brought us here. He's saying you cannot defeat it. You couldn't do it in your past and you can't do it in your present. Someone has got to come and obey those ten laws, keep every one of them perfect, and stand in your place, be pinned to a cross where you really should have gone, and stand for you and be for you in your place. A substitute. That then you can come and get behind Him and under the robes of His righteousness and be clothed with those robes. It's unspeakably beautiful. Hard to get our mind and head around. So I will close with this. The words of Horatius Bonar. Listen to this man. To be entitled to use another's name when my own name is worthless. To be allowed to wear another's raiment, their their clothes, their robe, because mine is torn and filthy. To appear before God in another's person, the person of the beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin bearer, listen, the sin bearer and I have exchanged names and robes and persons. I am now represented by Him. He now appears in the presence of God for me. All that makes Him precious and dear. Listen, folks. All that makes Him precious and dear to the Father has been transferred to me. His excellency and glory are seen as if they were mine. That's hard to read. The glory of our Savior as if it was mine. And I receive the love 
and the fellowship and the glory as if I had earned them all. So entirely am I one with the sin bearer that God treats me not merely, listen, not merely as if I had not done the evil that I have done. In other words, he forgives us. So entirely am I one with the sin bearer that God treats me not merely as if I had not done the evil that I have done, but as if, listen, this is mind-blowing, as if I had done all the good which I have not done. Sound familiar? Sounds like those verses from Paul. But which my substitute has done. You see all the do's and don'ts and dones and does of all that crazy stuff that makes our head spin? He did them. He did that with a full heart. And when he was forsaken on the cross, he still cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never turned his back on God, even though the whole world turned their back on him. What makes us think that our identity could possibly be found in keeping some mere rules when it was the king that kept those rules for us and as us and is asking one question of his people, will you trust me? The good which I have not done, but which my, subs- my substitute has done. In one sense, listen, I am still a poor sinner, once under wrath. In another sense, I am altogether counted righteous and shall be forevermore. Why? Because the perfect one in whose perfection I appear before God. We find a Christian does not find his identity, his purpose, and meaning in anything but in Jesus Christ, his King. That's our way to the Father. That's our way into the temple. That's why the temple curtain was torn in two, because God was saying, come to me, come. My Son has done it. My Son is your King. My Son is the King of the universe. Come to Him and lay your sins down and He will pick you up now in your presence. You're still going to battle sin, but now the battle is one you cannot lose. The genius of Tim Keller. You're going to lose this battle, but you can't lose this one. Why? Because of verse 25. Thank God for Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation. That's chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation. We can fight this battle. You can give up your life. You win. Even if it kills us. Thanks be to God. Will you trust Him? Hope you will. Lord, we thank You for this. Your kindness and Your mercy on us is unspeakable. We long to obey You and to follow You with all our heart, soul, and mind. For whatever minutes we have left, Father, I pray that this group of people here at Christ the King, that we can commit our lives to you, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that stuff, and trust you with it. Strive to do what is right, not to earn anything, but to be pleasing to you who saved us, who did this beautiful thing for us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And as we come to your table, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.